Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast. Hi. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And welcome back. We are well into series two now. Mm-hmm. Um, this week, it's Bethan's turn to regale us with a UK true crime story. Mm-hmm. So take it away. It's um, not going to be easy listening, guys. Just a quick warning. <laughs> um, Is it ever with us? No, but some are worse than others. Yeah, this one has stuck with me. In April 2016, the police were called to a welfare check in a property in Dawson Avenue, Spalding, in Lincolnshire. They were looking for Elizabeth Edwards, age 49, and her daughter Katie, who was aged 13. Neighbours had heard arguments and the sound of glass smashing at the house, so at 12.15pm on Friday the 15th of April, Sergeant Christopher Fletcher and his colleagues smashed their way into the family home through a living room window when there was no answer to their knocks at the front door. The sergeant and another officer went upstairs where they found the bedrooms in a mess, blood all over the place. Firstly, they discovered Elizabeth's blood-covered and partially clothed body. The sergeant went into the other room looking for Katie and he must have been expecting the worst when he pulled on the quilt and he said it felt heavy. Describing what happened next, he said, I was looking for Katie who was still outstanding, hoping that she was asleep, pulling and shouting, wake up. Katie had been stabbed to death and was led next to her toys. Elizabeth Edwards had been stabbed and suffocated in her bed and post-mortem examinations found signs of defensive injuries on the woman's hands, suggesting that she had tried to fight off her attacker. The police were able to establish that they had been murdered two days earlier on the 13th of April. The local community was unsurprisingly shocked. Around a dozen bouquets of flowers, a load of teddies and tributes were laid on the grass outside the family home where Elizabeth and Katie had been murdered. As forensic experts continued to examine the inside of the house and officers could be seen guarding the front of the house, people began to speak to the assembled press about the woman and child who had died. One resident living close to the semi-detached property said she had last seen Mrs Edwards on Tuesday, describing her as a lovely lady, very friendly, and said she was quite well known because she worked at a primary school and what has happened is just unbelievable. Katie was lovely too, but very quiet. And I did my usual, I did my little Google Maps. Standard. Yeah, I like to get in into the case and... You just want to be Jess from the Outlines podcast, I love where she goes podcast. and visits crime I feel like scenes. I should drive. I think what it stems from is when we were talking about the Jodie Jones case, and I said it was in Scotland, mm. and Scotland is quite a big country, and I Massive. didn't know enough about the place, ah. and I hadn't done my research into the place. And then a couple of people have messaged us and talked to us about the. Vi- it's not that rural. Or I remember it, that. You know. I remember someone got in touch and said, yeah. actually, it's not quite as you described yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I really enjoy now looking and, and getting to know. And if you look at the house, it's a real, it looks like quite a nice area. It looks like quite a nice house. And it seems like quite a quiet place where it's so t- like it's typical to say, but this sort of thing wouldn't happen. Yeah, definitely. A neighbour said to a reporter that it's just too much. We can't bear it. They were so lovely and we are all in shock. Um, Lucy, who lived on an adjacent street to the small cul-de-sac where Liz and Katie lived, said, It is an absolute tragedy and I hope they can now rest in peace. They were a quiet family, as far as I know. You never heard of any trouble from them. Miss Edward had been described as happy and smiling by parents at the primary school where she worked. She was a church-going woman who ran drama and choir classes at St Paul's Parish Church. And the Reverend Mike Cheshire said, 
I don't know how we'll manage without her because she's just brilliant, such a genuine, committed person of such integrity. It is such a horrible shock. And he added about Katie. Katie was just the most wonderful, gentle, fabulous 13-year-old, just so genuine. There was a mother called Becky and her daughter went to the school where Elizabeth Edwards was a dinner lady and she said, Liz was a lovely lady. She was always happy and smiling and full of life. I can't imagine why anyone would want to hurt someone like that. And a school friend of Katie's called Amber said, I've known Katie since we were four. When I saw her on Facebook, I didn't believe it at first. I couldn't think how it could be true. Then I just sat there crying. She was always smiling, carefree and happy and sees the best in people. Elizabeth had lived at the family home with two of her three daughters. Her daughters that she lived with were Katie and Kim. And Elizabeth was no longer with the father of her children. She had a partner named Graham Green, although he didn't live with her and her two daughters. And Elizabeth's oldest daughter, Mary Cottingham, was living on her own with her husband at her home. Oh, because I was going to say, who was she living yeah. with then? No, so she she's was, a lot she older. She was 27 years old. Ah, so okay, so she's grown She's up. allowed to live away. Yeah. She's not like a seven-year-old in her own no. house. Yeah, she, um, Mary lived um, in her own home with her husband. As the news broke that Elizabeth and Katie had been murdered, Graham Green posted a photo of him and Elizabeth on Facebook, and he wrote... My babe has gone, but you will always be in my heart forever and ever and ever. The lady meant the world to me. She was my rock and I was her grumpy Graham. And Katie, so young, lots of good times in front of us. R.I.P. Liz, you are always in my heart. Never, ever forget that I love you to the moon and back. And Elizabeth's oldest daughter, Mary, wrote on Facebook, I'm still in shock. Can't believe they're gone. I love them so much. I need my mum. Gone too soon, but will never be forgotten. I love you both. So, I mean, she's lost a mom and a sister mm-hmm. in one fell swoop. Yeah. Peter Edwards, the girl's father, he said, the loved ones around us will keep us strong every step of the way in a tribute on Facebook. Lincolnshire police appealed for anyone who saw any suspicious activity near the victim's home to come forward and Detective Chief Inspector Martin Holvey of the East Midlands Special Operations Unit said that post-mortem examinations had not yet taken place to determine the cause of death. He said that he just needed anyone with any information that was relevant from around the area in Dawson Avenue um, to just get in touch with the police. And he said that there would be um, uniformed officers sort of patrolling the area so anybody could just go up and speak to anyone if they had any concerns. Because again, with any kind of murder that takes place, particularly in communities like that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're just going to be thinking, well, there's there's a madman on the loose. We don't know what the motive was here. So, you know, could I be next? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a bit like your case that you talked about last week, where if the police had released the fact that it had been a gunshot, that could have caused mass hysteria. Yeah. So, Superintendent Paul Timmins said, The whole community is in shock, especially as a girl so young has lost her life. I would like to make clear that this type of crime is extremely rare. Indeed, we believe this is a completely isolated incident. He added, there is still a lot of police activity in the area and extra officers in the neighbourhood and I would encourage anyone who has any concerns to please talk to our officers. This is very much an active investigation that is in its early stages and police would like people not to speculate as to the circumstances surrounding it. We are looking at a number of lines of inquiry and we are doing our utmost to get to the bottom of what has happened. And soon, in fact, within days, the papers were filled with information about two arrests and subsequently two convictions that were made in connection with the horrific slaying. A girl and a boy who could not be named for legal reasons were sentenced to a minimum of 20 years in prison the following November. They were arrested just two days after the bodies of Elizabeth and Katie were found 
and one of the pair admitted murder, while the other admitted manslaughter. They were dubbed the Twilight Killers by the press, but the reason for this was not given, and the pair were not named. The reason for this was because in most criminal cases involving young people, their identity is not published if they're under 18, and at the time of this killing, the pair responsible were just 14 years old. The legal grounds for not publishing the identity of a criminal under the age of 18 is because of Section 45 of the Youth, Justice and Evidence Act 1999, which basically states that the court should protect things like the name, address and school, etc. of the defendant, and also restrict photos and videos so they may not be recognised by the media or the public. Reporting restrictions do not prevent media sources from being able to report the facts and the circumstances of a case, even if they're not able to name the child defendant, so they can still report on the case, but not give anything away that could... Because I was going to say, even with reporting restrictions on the facts, mm-hmm. you've got to be careful because the facts could give the identity yeah, away. absolutely. Open justice, then, is a fundamental principle of our criminal justice system here in England and Wales, and it means that most criminal trials will take place in an open court. And the exception to this is anonymity that is given to children. This is because we believe in a right to privacy for children and we believe that we have a duty to protect their welfare and their best interests. Courts deciding whether to grant or lift restrictions on reporting must balance a child's welfare needs and their best interests with this legal principle of open justice. So in basic terms, is it more important for the child to be protected or is it more important for society to be aware? Anonymity is automatic for children in the youth courts But in the Crown Court and Adult Magistrates Court, the decision to grant anonymity is discretionary. There are some exceptions in youth courts, for example, antisocial behaviour orders and gang-related injunction proceedings. So they don't necessarily have to have anonymity there. The protection of anonymity for child defendants lasts until their 18th birthday, but the victims and the witnesses can ask the court for lifelong anonymity. So to avoid a media circus and also to protect the teenage defendants who were described as emotionally vulnerable, the judge had chosen not to allow identification during this trial. The press had challenged the anonymity given to the killers based on open justice and said basically there should be a full and fair reporting of proceedings so the public could be aware of the justice that was administered in their name. The press also argued that it was impossible to report the case in any context if the relationship of the killers to the victims was not revealed. The press also said that the adverse impact on the pair, such as their rights to privacy and family life, was far outweighed by the rights of the press to report freely. There was obviously opposition to this, though, from organisations such as Just for Kids Law. They cited Article 3 of the 1989 UN Convention on the Rights of Children, and it states that the best interests of the child must be top priority. Which I do understand, because... It's uh, such a difficult one, though, isn't it? I suppose it's, you know, this would invoke a lot of debate. Mm-hmm, but Definitely. You know, I always think, I don't know, it's just so difficult, isn't it, yeah. with children? I think the word children as well, like, that is up to the age of 18. Yeah. And uh, it's a big difference between a five or six-year-old and a 15 or 16-year-old, but they're all still classed as children. Mm. So I do think it's interesting that they are able to make a decision around this, on a case-by-case basis, like the judge can make that choice. The press spent eight months pushing for the identities to be revealed, and post-conviction, the judge decided he would allow the killers to be named. Balancing the arguments of both sides, the judge concluded that the top priority was not the only priority, 
and given the exceptionally grave nature of this crime, he would allow the killers to be named. Human rights legal challenges from both sides of the argument delayed this decision, but the Court of Appeal finally ruled that the identity of the killers could be revealed. And though this murder case was unusual, it is not exceptional. Nearly 400 children have been convicted of killing in the last two decades, and the youngest was just 11 years old. I mean, I'm not surprised about the youngest age because mm-hmm. we know of those cases, but the amount of convictions, yeah, that's bad. And in it, I 20 think, years. I think it'd be interesting to see what kind of pattern emerges there. So has there been an increase in the last five years, for example? Has it decreased? Yeah, I think that'd be really interesting to see. I'm not saying like certain reasons are better reasons than others, but what are the reasons behind it? You know, What backgrounds what, do the yeah, children have? What brought this to the... To happen. Do their parents shop in Waitrose or farm foods? What would you be saying about that, Mark? Well, working class or hmm. middle class. Someone's judgy tonight. <laughs> as far back as 1968, Mary Bell was convicted of killing two children when she was 10. And Daniel Bartlam was aged 14 when he smashed his mother's head in with a hammer in mm. 2011. The 1993 murder of toddler James Bolger was carried out by two 10-year-olds, Robert Thompson and John Venables. This is a case that I honestly believe any person in the UK will at least have heard a little bit about. Yeah. Um, Many of our listeners will have seen that chilling CCTV image of the toddler's last movements when he's with his mother and then when he's led away by the two boys. It's not really something that UK podcasts ever cover, and I think it's because it's just so horrific to all of us still. I think it's one of those that, you know, you might find that's covered in 10 years, 20 years' time Mm. when it's not as raw, because I think it's still such a raw case to cover, and um, I just think it's, it's too difficult. It was a crime that stayed with a lot of people and it really shook this country Mm -hmm. um for two children to to be able to go out and do what they did i I just it's certainly something i wouldn't want to cover i wouldn't want to go there and we've covered some brutal cases and sometimes the cases do stay with you yeah and i just wouldn't want to go there and i think with them there is no reason i think that's also what's so chilling is whilst there's never a good reason at least when you can understand the background to something happening then you can start to sort of understand it and rationalize it but with those two boys there's just no it was a motiveless murder like what we covered last week um if any of our listeners don't know much about this the california dreaming podcast did cover this case a few months ago as one of her vacation series so she does a departure from california I was a bit unsure about listening to it because, like we were saying, it's one of those cases that really, really sticks to you. And I didn't know whether to just miss that week out when I was listening. But I thought, you know what, if anyone's going to discuss the case, Roseanne was absolutely the right person to take it on because she has got this way of talking about the cases and she's got this real empathy for the victims as well. Um, And actually, I'd really recommend that if anybody wants to know more about the case or... Um, hasn't really ever heard of the case either. Particularly for our international listeners, which make up half of our listeners. So, Mm -hmm, um, yeah, head over to that. Um, So if you're aware of this case, you'll also be aware of the fact that the killer's identities are protected to this day. 
But still to this day, people are being convicted for sharing information and current photos of Thompson and Venables. Well, I I have seen photos of Venables. I'm not going to say where, but, you know, I'm sure people can find them if they want to. I've seen photos. His face is as clear as day. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a lot of controversy around whether they, specifically Venables, should be allowed to still have their anonymity because at the time they were given new identities on the grounds that they would be rehabilitated and wouldn't offend again. But Venables has re-offended on numerous occasions and he also told someone about his real identity at one point. So that's like a complete no-no with it. He's now in prison and is probably going to be incarcerated for life now. I imagine he's probably bragging about who he is in there. He's probably not that bothered Thompson, on the other hand, he did not reoffend, and whilst it is believed he was the leader of the pair during the abduction and the killing, he's actually stayed anonymous and just lived a pretty normal life from that point on. Yeah, because I mean, I've read read reports in the press. Uh, you know whether they're true or not. I don't know how accurate they are. I don't know, but from people that kind of are still involved in his rehabilitation Mm. because that would be a lifelong thing he's on a lifelong license and they have said really this guy is a textbook case of Mm -hmm. rehabilitation and he is living a life now that actually he could have only dreamt of uh if he hadn't committed this murder and had stayed in the community in which he lived yeah you know with no education and bad parenting um mary bell is another one that people class as like a textbook rehabilitation can work if it's... Yeah, because you never hear anything about her. Sandre Sanchez-Gay was aged 15 when he was convicted as Britain's youngest contract killer. Sandre was caught on CCTV in March 2010, calmly walking up to the front door of a flat in Hackney, East London, and knocking on the door. When his target answered, he blasted her from point-blank range with a sawn-off shotgun and then fled the scene in a taxi. The teenage killer bragged about the killing to his friends in northwest London, and it was his bragging that unlocked the case for the police. And obviously I couldn't resist the opportunity to say, loose lips sink ships. Oh, not this again. <laughs> what did I say? Loose, loose lips cost lives. Yeah. His payment for the murder had just been £200, with which he bought a gold Dolce & Gabbana beanie hat with the money that he'd earned. I think I remember that. I feel like it was on... Crime Watch. Mm. I feel like I've seen Possibly. it on Crime Watch. Yeah. Yeah. He um and a did he shoot of... someone on the on the doorstep? Yeah. Did you say? Yeah, yeah I'm sure he it was. She opened the door. Yeah. I think I feel like her mum was in the house and just saw her daughter get shot. It was just cold blooded, and he thought he was going to get a lot more money for the hit. But yeah, he was 15 years old, and he was jailed for life with a minimum term of 20 years. But Elizabeth and her young daughter Katie were not killed by a random stranger, neither were they caught up in gang violence. There is one other person we haven't heard much about yet, and that is Elizabeth's middle daughter, Kim Edwards. Yeah, I was going to say, someone's missing here. Yeah. Due to the judge choosing to reveal the names of the killers, I can now tell you the full story of Kim Edwards and Lucas Markham, the youngest couple ever to be convicted of a double murder in British criminal history. Just a few days after the discovery of Elizabeth and Katie's bodies on the 18th of April, Kim and Lucas were in court for the first hearing at Lincoln Crown Court. They were both just 14 years old at the time. Kim was wearing a grey outfit and Lucas wore a blue jumper and neither of them showed any emotion as they sat in the dock flanked by three security officers. They spoke only to confirm their names before they were remanded in secure youth accommodation. 
The judge, Michael Heath, ordered that the pair should appear back in court on the 27th of June for the plea and case management hearing, and after this, the trial date was set for the 17th of October. Lucas came into the courtroom first, dressed in a dark blue sweatshirt and dark trousers, and he slumped in his chair, and he spent most of the hearing just looking down. He did glance briefly up at Kim as she was brought into the dock, but after this, they didn't really look at each other. Kim, wearing a striped blouse and a black cardigan, barely showed any emotion throughout the trial. Lucas pleaded guilty to murder at the start of the trial, whereas Kim admitted manslaughter but denied murder, claiming to be suffering from an abnormality of mental function which impaired her ability to form rational judgments. But jurors took just two and a half hours to reject her defence and convict her of murder. That's got to be one of the quickest deliberations mm, yeah. I've heard of in all the cases we've covered. Yeah, and I do, like, my opinion of this case and my opinion of her is I would have been right there with that jury saying, yeah, she did it within 10 minutes. At the end of the eight-day trial, so not even a That's a trial really either, short trial as yeah, well. Both Edwards and Markham were given 20-year minimum custodial terms in his sentencing remarks at Nottingham Crown Court, Mr Justice Haddon said that the pair would serve a minimum of 20 years, telling the court, this case is, in many respects, without parallel. There was remarkable premeditation and planning, and it was, on any view, substantial, meticulous and repeated. The killings were brutal in the form of executions, and both victims must have suffered terribly in their last minutes of their lives. Just an aside um, to this, the in the November, this was reduced by judges, so their sentences were set at 17 and a half years in prison each. I that, couldn't that, really find out why. And that's not much of a difference, two no, and a half year it, reduction? it isn't. I think there was a lot of difficulty around the basis of how long they should be sentenced to and that sort of thing, because they are children and that's... Because that's it, you know, that if they serve even 20 years, mm-hmm. they're going to be out in their mid-30s. Yeah. So they've got their whole lives ahead of them but it's likely that they would still potentially pose a danger to society. It's going to be an interesting one to find out when they are that bit older yeah. as to whether or not rehabilitation works for these kids or not. And they both definitely have a lot of issues, so if those can be dealt with, yeah, perhaps. As the sentence was delivered, Peter Edwards wept quietly in the public gallery and he stared at the defendants as they were led away. Now, there's loads of conflicting reports on what Lucas and Kim were like during the sentences. Some of the reports say that Kim was sobbing softly and wiped with her face a tissue. Um, Other reports say that they were smirking. And I think it really depends on which newspaper you're reading and what their angle is. Yeah, and also, I suppose if you're looking at trial, maybe there were points where it looked like they were Mm -hmm. smirking, other points where it looked like they were crying. You just don't know. Like you say, yeah, it's whatever angle you want to go with. I think so. Mr Justice Haddencave had um, praised the quiet dignity of the family members who had sat through the trial. In a victim impact statement read to the court, Mary Cottingham said, so the other daughter, she said, I can't believe what's happened. I was thrust into the biggest nightmare of my life. I still can't take it all in and can't get over the fact that my mum's gone. No matter how old you get, you still need your mum and I'm no different. We would talk about anything. She would give me advice when I was struggling. So she's lost a mum a sister and another sister who's going to be put behind bars that she's, I guess, going to want nothing to do with for the rest of her life. I can't imagine you would. So what was the series of events that led to the brutal murders of a mother and her 13-year-old daughter? Sadly, the motive behind the attack is one of the oldest reasons for murder in the book, jealousy. 
Kim Edwards claimed that her mother loved her sister Katie more than her and that she treated her like an angel. She said her sister got all the fuss and that her younger sister had taken her mother away from her and in one of the many police interviews, she told detectives, ever since I was young, I never got on with my mum. I knew she favoured my sister more than me. She said she didn't, but I knew she was lying. They would talk together and whenever I got into an argument with my mum, Katie would always take her side. Whenever I tried to talk to Katie, she would say, shut up and walk away. But she always expected me to listen to her problems. Do you know what strikes me so much about this? Mm. Is the level of immaturity. Yeah, she sounds like a like a little brat. It's literally she? like a child. And yeah. I know she is technically a child at 14. But, you know, generally at 14, you've got some level of maturity in some areas. Yeah. She sounds like a seven-year-old. Mm-hmm. And that's the motive for killing her mom and sister, it's appalling. Yeah, and I think if you're that childish, your reaction would be to break their Barbie doll or something, yeah. not to go and murder them. Peter Edwards, the girl's dad, was an abusive drug addict, and at one point in the family's history, his behaviour had actually forced Elizabeth to flee with her daughters to a women's refuge. Elizabeth then refused him to see his daughters as a result of this, but Kim really wanted to establish a relationship with her father, believing she would have been his favourite. She resented not being allowed to see him and was angry at her mum for not allowing her to see him. So to be fair, it was a disruptive childhood, certainly in the early years when they were together and he was a drug addict. Yeah, yeah. definitely. But also her mum's trying to do the right thing for her. So you'd think that you would... You would understand that. But again, that comes with a level of maturity. You would be able to see it that way with the immaturity that she's got. She doesn't see it like that. Yeah. And another grudge that Kim held against her mum was from when she was eight years old. They were staying at Caravan Park and Kim was moaning about the TV being broken. The police report from that time said that the mum had completely lost it and hit her in the jaw in front of her sister. The sisters were taken into care and spent four months with a foster family before they were returned to their mum and Kim never forgave her for the attack. So whilst Elizabeth perhaps isn't a complete angel... She, I mean, to get her children back after four months and that she obviously could show that it was a lapse of judgment and everything else I've read, that was the one thing that ever happened. And no parent is perfect. No, exactly. And I think you're right, you know, for social workers to agree for the children to be placed mm-hmm. back in the care of the mother, they would have carried out so many oh, checks yeah. and they'd be 100% happy that it's the right thing to do. So, yeah, maybe it was just a case that the mum was completely stressed out of her yeah. head because she'd had an abusive partner and she just lost it, like yeah. you say. We've all done it, not necessarily with our kids, but we've all lost it, whether we're driving in the car or whatever. Mm. So a year before the murders, Kim met Lucas at school. Apparently they were obsessed with each other, which I can completely understand because at 13 years old, your world is so small and you're obsessed with everything that's a part of your life. And hormones raging Mm -hmm. through your body. It's, you know, it's one of those times where, yeah, you don't have as much perspective as you do when you're older. And yeah, you you do get obsessed with things like that. Elizabeth strongly disapproved of the relationship, which she apparently described as toxic, and it seems to me that she was a bit worried that her daughter might be following a similar path to her own. She warned Kim at one point that Lucas was just like her dad, and Elizabeth even told Kim that she was worried that she would end up like her abusive drug addict father herself, so she's really worried for her daughter here, and even if Katie was her favourite, which no parent would ever admit to having a favourite, she still still clearly cared for Kim. She wanted her best interests at heart. 
Locals have described Lucas as having anger issues and some said that Kim changed dramatically since starting her relationship with him. One person said to a reporter, after meeting him, she stopped talking to people. If he spoke to her in the street, she would just walk off. She became a rebellious, sullen teen. Now, this doesn't always have to mean anything. 13 is a difficult age and like we were saying, you're full of hormones. And especially if the teen in question was already lacking in confidence, apparently in her younger years, Kim had begun wearing dark clothes, but had been bullied over her fashion sense. So her friends had encouraged her to change what she wore to some brighter colours and some nicer jeans. This time in her life had affected her a lot and she felt like people were out to get her. She's described herself as feeling depressed and suicidal at points in her life too. And she told officers that she had been a disaster from day one. I think that's tragic though, isn't it? Despite what she went on to mm-hmm. do, the fact that she's felt suicidal by the age of 13, 14, yeah. and that her life's a complete disaster and waste Honestly. of time. I think that's really sad to hear, yeah. despite um, what she did. This is it. I don't like her at all, but I do have that sympathy for her that that is horrific. Yeah. Because your life's only just begun at that age. It should be the time of your life. At, you're at school. You don't have really any worries and any cares. Lucas had also had quite a troubled childhood. And he didn't like Kim's family because he felt they weren't supportive of her. So they were just a really bad mix. At least if he'd have been a bit of a nicer kid, maybe they could have. he could have changed her and turned her around. It's almost one of those cases where two people meet and carnage ensues. And had they not met each other, although it was in them and they're capable of it, it's only ever, it only ever comes to the surface when they meet that kindred spirit. Mm, yeah, I think so. Guess where the kids were when they started hatching their plans? McDonald's? Obviously McDonald's. Oh, cringe. How did you guess? Yeah. They were sat at McDonald's and they started discussing how they could get rid of this biggest problem of their lives. Kim said in police interviews, quote, Lucas just hates me being upset. He didn't like my mum or my sister for that reason. I got rid of the biggest problem that made me feel depressed, which was my mum. It was a relief. My mum doesn't have to deal with me being suicidal anymore and my sister doesn't have to go through the heartbreak. The pair were in absolute agreement. They had planned this for a while. So after the McDonald's restaurant plans, they finalised the plans in the back garden of the family home that Kim shared with her sister and her mum. And two days later, they went ahead with the plot. Simon Myerson QC, who represented Lucas, said during the trial that they were two children trapped in a fantasy of their own devising. And Andrew Stubbs QC, who represented Kim, said that after coming up with the murder plan... The couple had been almost playing chicken with each other. They were unable to stop themselves. He did say about when she grows up as well, he suggested, as she matures, there will be an increasing appreciation of what she and Lucas have done and the horror that they had caused, which I think is very, very true. I think as they get older, they're going to suddenly realise that she got rid of two people out of her family. So that is like a quarter of the others apart from, no, half the others apart from her. Which is just shocking. Yeah, and I, I do think that, you know, that day will come when she's emotionally intelligent enough, mm. mature enough to realise what she's done that, and that can't be undone. And I think that will hit her. Yeah, I hope that she then deals with that rather than allowing it to destroy her. But you would hope that being in prison with psychologists, yeah, etc., that she would have, get the support surely. she needs. Yeah. Also, my terrible maths, two out of four is not a quarter. (laughs) Well. Hmm. The jury heard that Kim claimed that she had felt like murdering for quite a while 
and she'd also admitted to the police that knives were the best solution because they couldn't get hold of a gun. So here is the full story of that tragic night. Lucas walked the 30 minutes to Kim's house along Coronation Channel. In a rucksack on his back, he had four knives wrapped in a t-shirt. Two of them were large 8-inch knives with black handles and the other two were medium-sized blades. When he arrived, as a pre-arranged signal, he knocked three times on Kim's bedroom window. She opened the bathroom window and Lucas climbed up onto the shed and from there he made his way in through the bathroom window into the house. He said to her, are you ready to do this? And Kim replied that she was. So Lucas, knife in hand, snuck into Elizabeth's bedroom and he knelt on top of her where she slept and stabbed her in the throat. The pair had planned to cut their victim's voice boxes so they couldn't scream out and so that the daughter would not be woken by her mother's cries. So there's a huge amount of premeditation here, isn't there? You know, even down to the first strike of the blade will be on the throat so that they can't scream so as not to wake up Katie. This is not a game. This is not something they're taking up lightly. You can just imagine that it's probably all they've talked about for weeks, months. So much planning involved Mm -hmm. here. Elizabeth fought back and she ended up being stabbed a total of eight times. She had five major defensive wounds to her hands and of the two slashes to her neck, one of them had completely severed her windpipe. Within seconds, the walls and the bed were covered in blood and Lucas used a pillow to push down on Elizabeth and pinned her down as she died. Um, He sort of described it as he pushed her down until she went limp. Whilst the plan was mostly Kim's doing, she seems to have gotten cold feet when it came to the actual killings. And in her own words, quote, I heard her kick out and gurgling. I went into the room to see what was going on because I heard noises and I wanted to check that he was okay. He was on top of her with a pillow over her head. I think I heard her say, get off me. There was blood on her and on the bed and there were four blood splatters on the wall. And he told me to shut the door. All I could see was her shoulder and arms. She was struggling. She reached out her hand, so I grabbed it and kind of held it. As I realised it was her hand, I instantly drew my hand back and got into a cradle position. I sat on the floor next to the door and said to myself, breathe, as I was about to have a panic attack. My legs were shaking. Then I walked back and forth and said, it's going to be okay. Keep calm. It's going to be over soon. So although her mum had been stabbed, mm-hmm. you know, she must have known that that was her daughter... I think there so. and was her daughter was involved in it. That's just awful, isn't it? Yeah. And the bit that struck me was I wanted to I went into the room to see what was going on. I wanted to check he was okay. So it's not about oh, mom, it's about him. About yeah. Kim continued. After about ten minutes of putting his weight on her, she was dead. She had kind of gone limp and wasn't struggling anymore, but she was still making gurgling sounds. I think I said, Is she dead? It was a blur. It happened really quickly. He checked her pulse and he took off his shoes so he wouldn't make any noise and went into the other bedroom. So Kim had originally planned to murder her younger sister, but when it came to it, she just couldn't go through with it. And Lucas stepped up to do the job. He took off his shoes so that he couldn't be heard and he snuck into the room of the 13-year-old. While he did this, Kim went into the bathroom because she just didn't want to see any more. Katie Edwards was sound asleep and her toys were just inches away. From the bathroom, Kim heard her boyfriend attack her baby sister, who she heard crying, get off me, and I can't. Post-mortem results suggest that Katie managed to put up a bit of a struggle, but again, she was stabbed twice in the throat before being smothered with a pillow, and she did not survive. 
Kim and Lucas's plan was to then commit suicide together, but they changed their minds. They had written a suicide note entitled Fuck You World, but decided not to go through with the overdose, and instead they had some ice cream and toasted tea cakes. I mean, how Mm cold-blooded can you get? And was that in the house? In the house. Where the bodies were, then upstairs. just just downstairs in the kitchen. They had a bath together to clean all the blood off. Oh, so they're literally bathing in the blood of her mum and sister. Yeah. Yeah. Because you only need a little bit of blood for the Mm -hmm. water to turn red. Yeah. And there would have been loads of blood. They'd have been absolutely... Like, he would have been absolutely covered, and I imagine she would have been, because she was at least in the room when things were happening. So there must have been some... I don't. I wouldn't. I don't want to say sexual motive, but there's some sort of sexual element are, to this. Yeah, there's a creepy sexual element to this. They've got off on it, or mm. he has at least. In Kim's words, they had the bath together, so they would be clean and refreshed, and wouldn't smell of blood. We spent about twenty minutes in the bath, she said. The couple also had sex and spent mm. time just hanging out together downstairs while the bodies were upstairs. That freaks me out. Yeah. They're just downstairs having sex, eating ice cream while bodies are upstairs. It it definitely shows a level of depravity. Yeah, they spent 36 hours in the home with the body still left upstairs and they watched the Twilight films. Kim really liked the film, so she said to Lucas, why don't we watch it? Because she thought he might like it too. And clearly he did because they ended up watching all four films. So, Oh dear, as if it couldn't get any worse. I know, absolutely shit films as well. But then they were 14, so... Yeah, mm. aimed at that market. In police subsequent interviews and assessments with psychiatrists, Kim described the killings as a breeze and gave a horrifying account of blood being spattered against a wall and all over Lucas's face and hands. She told the officers, we went over the plan over and over again. So while she's trying to get this manslaughter defence... It's not going to cut anything. And the jury obviously didn't believe a word of it. No, and even though she wasn't necessarily committing the murder, she planned it and orchestrated it. Absolutely. And it's her family. She could have at any time called the police. Yeah. She could have said, do you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. At the start of the hearing, prosecutor Peter Joyce QC said that the victims were stabbed a total of 10 times in the cold, calculated and callous pre-planned attack. And at the trial, consultant forensic psychiatrist Dr. Philip Joseph said that he believed that the couple's intense, toxic relationship was the primary reason for the killings, telling the jury, Bonnie and Clyde, that sort of intense attraction, the emotional closeness, them against the world. It's that sort of thing that led on to this. And it really did sound to me like the pair were egged on by one another. They were caught up in the moment of it all. And I really do wonder if they've begun to realise the gravity or, like you said, will it be a few more years? So the sentencing starting point for a murder committed by a child was 12 years detention. So when we were talking about the 20 years and it was reduced, I think some of these factors perhaps came into play with the reasons behind reducing it. So starting at 12 years detention, the judge said that their case was substantially aggravated by the fact that it was a double murder. And then it was also made worse by the fact that the victims were asleep. And again, by the fact that they would have suffered terribly in the moments before their deaths. Had they been adults, he told them, they may well have been facing the whole of their lives in prison. And he said, I sentence you as children, which you are. I sentence you in hope for you and society rather than the expectation of failure. Karen Thompson, Deputy Chief Crown Prosecutor at CPS East Midlands, called the murders one of the most distressing and disturbing cases that I have ever encountered. 
Speaking outside the court after the sentencing, she said, Our deepest sympathies are now with the extended family and friends of Elizabeth and Katie Edwards as they attempt to come to terms with this horrific crime. Which was kind of similar to what you said about Mary. She's not only lost her mum and her sister, but she's also now lost another sister. Her dad perhaps is a little estranged from her. I'm not sure by this point whether he completely is because he was at the trial. But... Mm. And that would have been a difficult relationship. Yeah. Based on the history of it, yeah. And after the trial and conviction, Detective Superintendent Martin Holvey of Lincolnshire Police spoke to the press, discussing how the murders were even more shocking to the UK as soon as the country realised that it was two 14-year-olds. He said, I'm sure that the sense of disbelief and horror will now be deepened as it is known that it was Elizabeth's own daughter who was responsible for plotting with her boyfriend to carry out the murders. Evidence heard in court that was previously restricted can now be reported, including details about the behaviour and actions of Kim Edwards and Lucas Markham afterwards, which are just chilling. They showed no remorse at all when they were eventually found by officers and during their police interviews. Um, so he kind of said about how it's like a horrific ordeal again, but also paying tribute to the courage of their family, and that was something that came up time and time again. There was a Channel 4 show called Murdered by My Daughter, which looked at the case in a lot more detail. Graham, the boyfriend of Elizabeth, compared Kim to the Moors murderer, Myra Hindley. And Kim has been reported to have said that her mother deserved to die, and she was glad that she was dead. So an expert has said that this shows like a high level of psychopathy, which I completely agree with. Yeah, I would. Experts have also disagreed about whether or not they were both equally to blame. So on the TV show, they were sort of talking about this. One expert concluded that Lucas was the driving force behind the gruesome plot. This forensic psychologist, Michael Brooks, said that he believed Lucas was a dominant driving force and Kim might not have even wanted her family dead. The two of them were obviously given equal sentences, even though Kim didn't do any of the actual killing. And so that's quite an interesting debate that people have is if he did the killing, should he really have taken more of responsibility? Um, on the other hand, criminologist David Wilson is certain that Edwards was the psychopath behind the plan because of her egocentric belief that she was actually doing her victims a favour by having them murdered. And I honestly think that if she could have carried on with her part in the killing, she would have done. It was just that she... I don't want to say chickened out, because actually it's think... still really serious, but... She couldn't go through with it, so I, I think that she's in, as much to blame. I think she almost surprised herself, Yeah, I would guess, on that day, that night, whatever, that she couldn't actually go mm, through with I it. I agree. Um, I don't have a nice happy ending for you, what? sorry. I just... It's not very Bethan. This case is horrible. Yeah, it's um, disturbed you, hasn't it? Yeah, so that's that's the nice Is that it, then? You're not going to be able to sleep. Great. Sorted. <laughs> Yeah, we'll come up with something, I don't know, something fun. We need something more tame. Yeah, we need like a clown or something. Well, no, actually, that's quite scary. No, that's very scary. <laughs> well, we hope you found that interesting at yeah, least, even if it is a little life. disturbing. Mm. Um, next week, we'll have something, well, we'll see. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe oh, something less We just brutal. both sound really drained from I'm drained from that, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Sorry for that, guys, but thank you for listening. Don't forget you can find us on all of the usual social media platforms. Yeah, come and have a chat with us. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search Seeing Red, a UK True Crime podcast. And if you would like to support the show on Patreon, then you can find us at patreon.com forward slash Seeing Red podcast. So until next week, guys, see you soon. Bye. Bye.